As Seth said, we are glad to have each one of you here this morning for our Sunday morning worship period. If you're visiting with us, we are honored and happy to have you uh, always as a visitor and come back and be with us anytime you can, can do that. story is told about a Sunday school teacher who was trying to teach her class the importance of family life and how members ought to treat each other. So she illustrated her point by reading and talking about the commandment that we find in Exodus chapter 20 verse 12. And that commandment says, honor your father and your mother. And then she added, now that we know God's command for how we ought to treat our parents, can anyone give me a commandment that tells how we should treat brothers and sisters? And there was a long pause. And then one little boy's face lit up and his hand shot up and he said, how about thou shalt not kill? <laughs> Today in this sermon, we're going to talk about how the first, the first of the Ten Commandments also applies to families. The first of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, somebody, somebody could be thinking right here, well, we're not living under the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments today. And that's true. The Old Covenant and the Mosaic Law was given specifically to the nation of Israel. And that covenant was nailed to the cross of Christ. But the great principles that we find in the Old Testament such as this commandment on the screen and eight of the others are also found in the New Testament law of Christ that we are living under today. Just for example, the word idol and forms of it like idolatry are found 162 times in the New Testament. So today we're continuing the sermon series on counterfeit gods. Counterfeit gods. In this series of lessons, we've been studying how other things and even other people can become counterfeit gods, little g-gods, by taking the place in our lives that belongs only to Jehovah God. 
And as we just mentioned, the word for that is idolatry. And let's remember this. Idols and idol worship are part of the war that Satan is waging for our hearts and lives today. Today. There are six of these counterfeit gods on the screen that we're studying in this series. And these are six things that there's nothing wrong with in and of themselves unless we allow them to take the place of Jehovah God in our lives. And we're grouping these six into three temples. In the temple of pleasure, we've already studied the two little g-gods of food and entertainment. In the temple of power, we study the little g-gods of success and money. So today, we're moving into the third temple, and that's going to be the temple of love. The temple of love. And in this temple, we can find two more counterfeit gods that can take the place of Jehovah God in our lives if we're not careful. So the counterfeit God that we're studying today is going to be the God of family. The God of family. You know, family is one of the great gifts and great blessings that God created for us. And yet it's one of the gifts that can easily become an idol. So in the sermon this morning, we're going to think about and study how that can happen and how to keep that from happening. Now, if you're on social media, you may see a lot of quotes and memes, they're called, with an idea that's maybe similar to this one on the screen. And you know, quotes like this one on the screen may give you a warm, fuzzy feeling when you read them. And I don't know, some of you right now, looking at this one, may agree with it. But is it scriptural? Is it scriptural? Is it based on what the Bible teaches? We're going to answer that question today. So as we begin today, there are, there are two facts that we all need to be sure that we understand. Fact number one, the place that God has in our lives must be over and above any other. In fact, number two, the love that we have for God must be first and greater than any other. 
In Matthew 22, a Pharisee lawyer asked Jesus a question. And his intention was to try to test him, trap him. In verse 36 of that chapter, the question was, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And in the next three verses, Jesus answered him, and he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God. And as we read, the second is to love one another. You see, our relationship to God the Father is basic and foundational to who we are and to why we have been created. We are intended to love children, parents, siblings, and spouses wholeheartedly. But it always has to be in the context of our primary and foundational love for God. Our love for God must be our deepest love, our greatest love. And it actually becomes the source for all other love. Because only when we love God properly can we begin to love others properly. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus made that fact, you could say, shockingly clear. Verses 25 and 26 in Luke 14. Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we know from the full counsel of Scripture that we are to love everyone and not hate anyone. So how do we explain what Jesus said there in verse 26 about hating family members and even your own life? You know, I've heard preachers and teachers in the church stumble over that verse and never really answer that question. But you know, if we dig a little deeper right there, we find that in the Jewish culture of ancient times, the term by hate 
was used to express sometimes a lesser form of love. And the commentator, Brother Wayne Jackson, points out a good example of that in Genesis 29 on the screen. And this is from the old King James Version that some of you like to use. The old King James Version says in verse 31 that Jacob hated his wife Leah. Leah was hated. And yet the context makes it clear in the previous verse, verse 30, that he simply loved his other wife Rachel more than Leah. One Bible version translates what Jesus said in Luke 14, 26 in this way. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, Yes, even your own life, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. Another version puts it this way. You cannot be my disciple unless you love me more than you love your father and mother, your wife and children, and your brothers and sisters. You cannot follow me unless you love me more than you love your own life. And there's a parallel passage in Matthew 10, 37, where Jesus said this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So in Luke 14, Jesus was not talking about what we think of today as hate for family with malice and ill will, but he was emphasizing the, the centrality and the sheer magnitude of our love for God in comparison to our love for others. You see, God must be the only one on the throne of our hearts. God is not going to share the throne of your heart with a spouse. No matter how beautiful or handsome or charming the spouse may be. God is not going to share the throne of your heart with your children or grandchildren. No matter how adorable or talented or gifted they may be. God is not going to share the throne of your heart with parents 
or grandparents or best friends. Now some of you, some of you might not have liked what I just said right there or the way I put it. But that's exactly, that's exactly what Jesus meant in Luke 14, 26 and Matthew 10, 37 that we just read. So this morning, let's take a look at three Bible accounts where people had to deal with the little G God of family and the temptation of putting family ahead of Jehovah God. We're going to look at one bad example of somebody who failed miserably by putting his family ahead of God. And God punished him severely for that. And then we're going to look at two good examples of people keeping Jehovah God in his rightful place, above and ahead of family. And all three examples come from the Old Testament. So here's the first account. And it's about a priest named Eli. Priest named Eli. Eli was the priest of God who was given the task of raising and training the the prophet Samuel. And Eli had two sons who were also priests of God. But they were not living godly lives and acting appropriately. We first read about them in 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, which says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And one of the wicked things they were doing was helping themselves to the meat brought for sacrifice before it was properly offered to God. Verse 17 in that chapter says this about their behavior. Therefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But that wasn't all they were doing. Verses 22 through 24 tell us Now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel. And look at this. How they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. So Eli's sons were also committing sexual immorality with the women who went to the tabernacle for worship of all places. And they were treating the offerings to God with contempt and and dishonor. But as we read... All Eli did, all he did was to basically say to them, I don't like hearing about your bad behavior. 
Now, as a priest, a spiritual leader of Israel, at a minimum, at the very least, Eli should have removed his sons from their positions of leadership. But because of Eli's weakness as a parent and his failure to lead as a priest, as he should have, God sent a messenger to him with these words for Eli in the text that Dale read. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Now I want you to notice the words right there that we read, honor your sons more than me. When you bow down to the little G-God of family, that's exactly what you're doing. You're putting your love for and allegiance to your family ahead of and above your love for and allegiance to God. In verses 34 and 35, the messenger went on to say this to Eli. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons. On Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. So the messenger there prophesied that both of Eli's sons would die on the same day. As a sign to Eli about his weakness and his failures. And that God would raise up a different priest from a different family who would be faithful to God. And that person was Samuel. That was Samuel. So I hope that everyone here today can learn from Eli's bad example to never put family above or ahead of Jehovah God. And you know, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, is a good example of someone who put God first by giving her son to God for his full-time service. All right, the second example that I want to mention is the good example 
of King Asa, Asa the king. After the nation of Israel split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, that we talked about this morning in the adult class, after that happened, Asa was the second king of Judah to reign after Solomon's son, Rehoboam. First king after Rehoboam was the father of Asa, Abijah, who was a wicked king. He only reigned about three years. So when Asa became the king, God sent the prophet Azariah to him with this message. 2 Chronicles 15, verse 2. Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And the chapter goes on to say in verse 8, And when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Odeah the prophet, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. In the next verses we read that Asa gathered a large assembly in Jerusalem and they all made a covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart and soul. And then down in verse 16 of that chapter, there's an important detail recorded in that, that verse that I want us to focus on. Here it is. King Asa also deposed his grandmother, Maacah, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down, broke it up, and burned it in the Kidron Valley. So King Asa deposed or removed his own grandmother, Maacah, from being the queen mother of the nation of Judah because she had made an idol, a repulsive image for the worship of the false god Asherah. Asa cut down her idol, broke it up, burned it in the Kidron Valley just outside the walls of Jerusalem. So notice there how Asa corrected and disciplined his own grandmother. He removed her kicked her out from her royal position in Judah and he destroyed her idols. Now, do you think Asa loved his grandmother? Well, more than likely he did. He loved her enough to make it clear that Jehovah God ought to be first in her life, just like God was first in Asa's life. 
probably the greatest Old Testament example that, that illustrates the battle of keeping God on his throne over and above family is the account of the testing of Abraham. Now most of you are familiar with this account, so we're not going to take the time to, to go into a lot of great detail. But as you may remember, Abraham and Sarah waited at least 25 long years for Isaac to be born, the son of promise. And you know that was absolutely a test of faith for them to have to wait so long. And they failed to believe at times along the way. And so Abraham and Sarah, you may remember, tried to take the matter into their own hands and bring along a son through a surrogate. And so they ended up with Ishmael. And that caused a lot of problems on down the road. And God made it clear to them that Ishmael was not the son of promise. So after Isaac was born, things seemed to go along pretty well until Isaac was maybe around 16 years old. But in Genesis 22, we read about an assignment, an assignment that God gave to Abraham. God said to him in verse 2, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now you might find it interesting that the very first time in the Bible, the very first time in the Bible where the word love is used is right here in this verse, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Now, as we read and study this account today, we know, we know that it was only a test, a test of Abraham's faith, because we know the outcome. We know the events in the rest of the Bible that had not yet been written. We know the part that Isaac played in God's overall plan. And we know that God forbids the making of human sacrifices. We know all that. But Abraham didn't know all that at the time. No parent in the world could hear this account of Abraham and Isaac without trembling. Most parents would give their lives for any of their children without a second thought. But I want to encourage us today to extend the boundaries and the applications of this account because it's not just about parents and children. 
Who do you love so fiercely, so protectively, so desperately? For whom would you lay down your life? As we say, for most parents, they would do that for their child in a heartbeat. You know, the parents of the children who were tragically killed in the school shooting in Texas a couple of weeks ago, they all would likely have done that. But what about, what about a brother or a sister? What about a parent that you've always been close to? Or a spouse? Or even a best friend? You see, those who are family can be more than biological. As we're going to talk about more at the end of the sermon. Something that we need to keep in mind is the fact that God's greatest gifts, God's greatest gifts can also be his greatest test. The more beautiful and important something or someone is to us, the more capacity it has to become an idol. So the challenge for us is to love and appreciate God's great gifts without worshiping them. We have to keep things in the right order and on the right shelf, you could say. We have to be able to love God's gifts in a way that makes us love the giver of the gifts all the more. And that means to love the giver more then we love the gifts. So back to Abraham's account. As you may remember, Abraham started out the first thing the next morning after receiving God's assignment about Isaac. It was a journey of three days. Abraham took along a donkey, two servants, and of course Isaac. When they neared the mountain, Abraham told his servants to stay behind with the donkey while he and Isaac went up the mountain to worship. And then he told them in Genesis 22 verse 5 that we, we will come back to you. We meaning both he and Isaac. In Hebrews chapter 11 on the screen, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned that God could raise his son from the dead. And so he was fully prepared to take Isaac's life. Even though up to this point, 
There's no Bible record of God raising anyone from the dead. The account tells us that as Abraham and Isaac made their way up the mountain, Isaac asked the heart-wrenching question in Genesis 22, verse 7, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham answered in the next verse, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. When they reached the summit of the mountain, Abraham built an altar, laid out the firewood, and then bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. As Abraham raised the knife to take the life of his son, God's voice from heaven stopped him. Saying in verse 12, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham had passed the test. He had shown the depth of his commitment to God. And he had shown that his love for his son was in a proper relationship with his love for God. Before we leave this account, I want us to, to look at and think about something that really ought to touch our hearts. And to do this, we need a map. And I just happened to have one. When God gave that assignment to Abraham, he was living in Beersheba, small oasis in the desert, in what is today the southernmost part of Israel. And yet God sent him on a three-day journey northeast to Mount Moriah. Now that was a distance of about 50 miles. Traveling on foot, one donkey to carry the wood, through some pretty rugged territory, because I've been through some of it. So why did God send Abraham that far to that particular place to lay Isaac on the altar in this test? Why not do it at Beersheba? What difference would it make? Well, here's the difference. Here's the difference. About a thousand years later, after Abraham lived, in 2 Samuel 24, King David bought a certain piece of land. And he built an altar for worship to God on that land. Later on, David's son Solomon would build the great temple of God on that same land 
in the city of Jerusalem. Now, do you know where on the map that piece of land was located? It was on Mount Moriah, same place that God had sent Abraham. And then about a thousand years after David and Solomon lived, on that same piece of land, another father sacrificed his son. But this time, it was no test. It was no test. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, what God had asked of Abraham, but did not eventually require he was willing to do himself because he loves us that much. So let's do a little self-examination right here. Here are a few questions that might help you determine if your love for family is in a right relationship with your love for God. Question number one. When it comes to your happiness and sense of well-being, do you look to God first for those things? Or do you look first to a spouse or children or parents or friends? We have an expression today, worship the ground they walk on. Now, if that's literally true with any of your relationships, spouse, children, or parents, then something is wrong in that relationship. Something's out of whack. Question number two. Who are you more interested in making and keeping happy? Your parents, a spouse, your children, friends, or God? Now be honest with your answer. If you're an adult child with living parents, are you still trying to win the approval of your parents or is God's approval the most important thing? And if you're a parent, are you trying to win and keep the love of your children and make them happy by allowing them to put earthly things before and ahead of God? And you know one example of that would be parents who allow their children to skip the services of the church 
because of other commitments like sports events, social functions, and sometimes the parents miss the services with them. Question number three. If there is a conflict between what God wants you to do and what your parents or spouse or children or friends want you to do, who do you listen to? Who do you obey? Do you ever allow a husband or a wife or a parent or a child to keep you from serving God as you know you should? You know, sadly, there are plenty of cases where people put off or reject obedience to the gospel because a husband or a wife or a parent or some other family member is dead set against it. Do you ever try to keep your Christianity hidden? Kind of under wraps. Not obvious. So as not to be rejected or ridiculed by somebody important in your life. Maybe someone that you may love. If you have a family member that lives in a way that is opposed to God's word and his will or is outside the body of Christ, do you change or modify your beliefs in what you know is right to accommodate that family member? You see, all of those are examples of what can happen if we put love for family ahead of love for God. And question four. Are you trying to get from others something that you should only be getting from God? You know, everyone has a void <clears throat> an empty space in our lives that God put there on purpose to draw us to Him. And we can't expect material things or other people or even family to fill that void. Family relationships should be characterized by love. That's important. When you love God first and foremost in your life, it doesn't mean that you don't love your family. It just means that you love them differently. In reality, the most loving thing that we can do for anyone in our lives is to have God be in His rightful place in our life. If God is first 
in your life, if he is truly, truly on the throne of your heart, then you can be the best husband or the best wife or the best parent or the best child or the best friend. And let me add this important point that I mentioned earlier. When we're in a right relationship with God, And God is our Father. And Jesus is our brother. And the church, the church is truly our family. In Mark chapter 3, there was a day when Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers came looking for him. And they stood outside waiting for him. Jesus was inside a house teaching a crowd of people. When he was told that his family was outside looking for him, I want you to notice what he said. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, the most important family that we can be a part of is God's family the church, the body of Christ. As members of the church, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Your earthly biological family cannot save you on its own by itself. You can't be saved for anybody else in your family. And no one in your family can be saved for you. Only in God's family, the church, can salvation be found. So if you're not a part of that family today, then Christ offers you his invitation to believe that he is the Christ the Son of the living God, to turn away from your sins in repentance, to confess the name of Christ and put Him first in your life, to be immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins, and then to live a new and a faithful life in Christ. If you need to respond to the invitation in any way this morning to confess sin, maybe in a public way, or to ask for the prayers of the church, or to obey the gospel, Christ invites you to come today. As together we stand and sing.